Open your Bibles or take your devices. We're going to look together today at our second in the series. Um, the series is entitled Five Metaphors for the Church. And we opened it up, introduced it last week, and last week we focused on the first metaphor, which was the church as the body. I only heard one correct answer, but whoever it was, very good, Melissa, good job. The church as the body of Christ. And so today we're shifting to another very different metaphor, but one that is commonly used and one I think that you will find to be quite intriguing. And that is a study of the church as the bride of Christ. How many of you knew that actually the idea of the church being the bride of Christ is introduced in the Old Testament? How many of you knew and recall that in the Old Testament, actually Israel was referred to as the bride of Jehovah? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it true that as we study the Bible, we become more familiar, we find that the Old Testament introduces New Testament concepts, doesn't it? And we find that then the New Testament fulfills many Old Testament models and types and predictions. And so here we find kind of an introduction to the idea of the relationship that God was looking for this intimate relationship with Israel. And he referred to her as the bride of Jehovah. But then as we switch our attention to the New Testament, we begin to see the bride in more spectacular detail. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures. Revelation chapter 21, lots of scriptures in here in Revelation 21, 22 about the bride. But look at this one. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Look at this. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Listen, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, we are the bride of Christ, and the closer we get to the return of Jesus, and the closer we begin to see fulfillment of the book of Revelation taking place in front of our very eyes, we will begin to see the bride of Christ coming into its full glory. Whenever I was a child, my grandmother uh, would take me even as a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old boy. And she would hold, let me sit in her lap and she would take my hands and she would form my hands. And she would, in my hands, make my fingers like this. And she would fill my fingers just like this. And she would say, that's the church. There's the steeple. Have you done this before with your kid? <laughs> of course. You're looking at me like, you're really strange. Uh, and, then, and then you do what? And then you go inside and say, and look inside are all the people. Now, as cute as that is, it's just not quite totally accurate because the truth of the matter is that the church is the people. It's not the people inside the church. The church is people. We are the church. Look at your neighbor and say, you're the church. Yeah, we are the church. And here we find in Ephesians 5 an ongoing explanation we usually when we read from ephesians 5 we're speaking on the subject of what marriage yeah and it's great for that but it does tell us that there's a comparison being given between the relationship of a husband and a wife compared to the relationship between christ and the church look at it wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as christ is the head of the church that's one we talked about last week right the head in the body, Christ, the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Look here. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
What is it trying to say? There is a relationship, and it goes on in the, in the chapter and talks about how the husband ministers to the wife and so on. The relationship between a husband and a wife, a bride and a bridegroom, is compared to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the bride. You're the bride of Christ. I know it maybe, um, I guess it, I shouldn't present it as irony, although it was fully unintentional on my part, but who would have known that the week that we had already reserved in the series plan to speak on the church as the bride of Christ would fall on a week in which the culture wars seemed to have reached a high pitch. And I just, I don't want to get into it in depth, but only to say this. For me, the Bible is still the highest authority in the land. And um, we, I think, can read very clearly, inspired by uh, God's help, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, uh, what marriage is all about from a biblical definition. So um, all the more reason to pray for our nation. All the more reason to pray that we will be steadied and anchored to the truth of God's word and not swept away by the cultural wars that swirl around us. Can anybody say amen? Okay. Um, I do just want to introduce you to something in, in case it, it might be new to you. Um, because when we read in the New Testament, we're reading a, a, a really a Jewish-based document. Most of it has Jewish backdrop to it. Very important when we look at a metaphor like the idea of the bride of Christ, we ask ourselves the question, when Paul uses certain references and certain scriptures that speak about this, what did he have in mind? And we usually interpret things in the context of what? Our own experience. Or we, we say, oh, well, I've been to a wedding before. I know what that looks like. But the problem is we, most of us, don't have a clue as to what a Jewish wedding or stage of relationships were what they looked like. So I thought it would be helpful just to review this with you, not in great detail, but at least conceptually so you get a hold of this. There were three stages of a Jewish marriage that they went through to get married. The first stage was courtship. And courtship was that getting, getting acquainted time, and it was a time even of, they had very, very clear familial involvement in the process, but a man and a woman would begin to court. Finally, at the end of a courtship period, if they determined that this marriage was to be, they would get engaged. What is different that we need to get a hold of is engagement was then, not what engagement is today. Today, people fall in and out of engagement all the time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this week they're engaged, and then just give it a little couple months, and they're out of engagement. Now they're engaged to someone else, and it's just like it's very flippantly treated. It's not treated with great covenant. It's not viewed as any kind of a serious agreement. Sometimes, actually, people get engaged out of convenience. You know what I'm talking about? So, but to a Jewish couple, when they got engaged, that was serious business. That was an engagement that was being the word uh, that many times, certain, depending on your translation, would use. They were betrothed. How many of you remember the relationship, the betrothal relationship that we read about when we even read the Christmas story and the relationship between Joseph and Mary? Right? Was that viewed as a serious, serious bond? Yes. Oh. 
all the more reason, Joseph said, man, I don't have a choice. We're going to have to get a divorce. Wait a minute. They weren't married yet. Yes. In those days, when you were just betrothed, it was so serious, you had to get a divorce from engagement. It was a different deal. It was a deep commitment. And during that engagement period, there were many different principles and laws, mosaic laws that came into being. For example, there was a mosaic law that said, while you're engaged, the, man is not, the male is not allowed to go to war. You cannot serve in the military while you're engaged. I don't want to digress and get off into a bunny trail, but can any of you just guess why in the world, why would God set up a regulation like that that while you're engaged, you couldn't go to war? I'll tell you. Because you're useless. Absolutely <laughs> useless. Go back and study it. I said there are a number of things you weren't to do. You weren't to, you weren't to design and build a new home. I know a lot of people do that while they're engaged. And the idea was, don't do anything that, that's going to that's require focus and attention and dedication. Because while you're, getting in, while you're engaged and you're preparing for marriage, you're singularly focused on one thing. Right? Getting married and hopefully your bride or your groom. And so, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good not to have someone out on the field, you know, defending my country who's got their mind on something else. So anyway, that was the reason for the law. All right. So here are the stages of Jewish marriage. Courtship, engagement, and then from engagement, obviously consummated with marriage. And obviously that was a very, very significant covenant and one that should be highly regarded and respected. So now let's shift to talk about the bride of Christ today. You and me as the bride of Christ today. We want to talk about some marks of the true bride of Christ. I want to offer to you five today. I think they'll be meaningful, they'll be very uh, relevant to the scripture, but they'll also be very practical for you and for me. Five marks. Are you ready for these? Number one, number one, a bride is passionately in love with her groom. A bride is passionately in love with her groom. I love the passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17 that says this. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. He's praying for us and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. How many of you are passionate about getting to know Jesus better? The purpose, the whole purpose of engagement time was the getting to know each other. Now we know, paralleled to uh, the Jewish uh, engagement period, we know that the bride is the church, the groom is Jesus Christ, but how do those phases relate to us? Because the Bible speaks of us today, the church, as being in what period of time? What phase? We're in the engagement phase. Many Christians think, oh, I'm already married to Christ. No, you're not married to Christ yet. You are to be devoted to him. You're to be absolutely committed and faithful to him. But you are betrothed to Christ. You are in the engagement phase. And we'll be in the engagement phase until Jesus comes back. And we're going to have a large wedding one day. 
all together, we're going to have a large wedding one day, and there'll be a wedding, and there'll be great celebration, a great ceremony, but that day is in the future. So right now, we're pre-wedding. You might immediately be wondering, well, what would the courtship have to do with? I'll give you my theory. I believe the courtship is pre-conversion. Because the Holy Spirit courts people. He's wanting to woo people as a bride. He's wanting to woo them into a closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And he comes to represent. In fact, we, we look in the Old Testament as a story of, uh, in Genesis chapter 24, we learn a lot of, of, of what that wooing and even how Eliezer went to find a bride. Abraham sent Eliezer to find a bride for Jacob. So, if you don't know Jesus personally, if you're not a born-again believer, you would be in the courtship period. And I hope the Holy Spirit courts you really strong and wins you over to Jesus as your betrothed groom. So we as the church today live in that betrothal period, pre-wedding, post-courtship. One of the purposes of engagement is getting to know each other deeply. And it is marked by passionate love on the inside of both the bride and groom for one another. The purpose of engagement is to get to know each other, developing intimacy with one another. Jesus wants you to get to know him better. And a true bride is passionately in love with her betrothed one. This summer, Carrie and I will uh, celebrate next month 40 years of marriage. And we're excited. Yeah, hallelujah. Um, but I remember we didn't have a lengthy engagement period. She was one of my very close friends. But once we got engaged, I remember during that six and a half months of engagement, it was ridiculous. Because of the amount of time we wanted to spend with one another. All that motivated us was simply hanging out. We both had jobs, and we worked at jobs, and immediately after we got through with our work, we'd make sure that we planned, and I'd come over to her, her little apartment, and she cooked me dinner, and she baked me cookies. And we would sit there together, and we'd talk, and we'd talk, and we'd talk, and we'd talk, and all of a sudden, we'd look at our watches, we'd go, oh my gosh, I can't believe what time it is already. And I'd say, I've got to go. I'd say, please don't go. I, I must go. I've got to get up early. Oh, please don't go. Why? Why was that kind of stuff going on? We were in love. And we were wanting to deepen our knowledge of one another. And we wasn't just acquaintance at this point. Now, as a matter, I want to know everything about you. I want to know everything that makes you tick. I want to know what pleases you. I want to know what, what you like, what you don't like. It was that kind of an intensive engagement period. But it was marked by that passionate love. Couldn't wait for that wedding day. But in the meantime, Revelation 3.20 is a good description. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. How many of you have used this scripture? It's a good one. 
for witnessing to people about Jesus. How many of you use that scripture before? Hopefully, you have, if you haven't, you're not witnessing enough. But anyway, you, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will just hear the knock, hear my voice, and they open up, I'll come in and we'll have fellowship with one another. What you don't know, and I don't want to ruin your witnessing tool, what you don't know is this has absolutely nothing to do with unbelievers. This scripture is written to the church. It's a part of a letter to the church. You say, well, what, what does it mean? What it means is this. The bridegroom is knocking. The betrothed bridegroom is knocking, knocking, knocking. Say, I just want to have fellowship. I just want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. I want you to get to know me. But we have to respond. He's knocking, but the bride has to desire passionately be in love with him and be willing to open the door of our lives for the purpose of what? Intimate fellowship. The Apostle Paul, even at the very close of his life and ministry, as he's writing to the church at Philippi, said this, I want to know Christ. Can you imagine? Say, well, he knows Christ. Sure, he already knows Christ. Yeah, but there was something on the inside of him that says, I want to know him better. I want to know in all of his fullness. I want to know my bridegroom. That's someone that's a part of the bride crying out for that level of embrace. I pray that you have already come to the point in your spiritual walk where you are in love. It's not just enough to say, yes, I know Jesus personally. He's my Lord and my Savior. Yeah, but are you in love with him? Are you in love with him? And if you're not, pray and ask God will help you fall deeply in love with the bridegroom because you are the bride of Christ. The second characteristic and second mark I want you to remember, number two, is that a bride prepares herself for the wedding day. A true bride will always be in preparation, remember, in the betrothal period, awaiting the wedding day, the finality, the consummation. But in the meantime, the bride is making herself ready. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, it talks about the bride being sanctified and cleansed and getting cleaned up and getting ready. Revelation 19 uh, speaks to the bride and the upcoming wedding and says, the bride is making herself ready. Now, by the way, this is an interesting tension in Scripture. How many of you know the, the Bible's full of paradox? And if you finally get to the point of realizing it's beautiful to notice paradox, and it's nothing to get all unnerved about, this just shows you there's some deep meaning and beauty there. Here's one of the interesting insights about this preparation stage. There's a dual responsibility. Jesus is making us ready. It's the work of His Spirit to sanctify us, Right? But there is also a part the bride plays. So there is a dual shared responsibility to get ready for the wedding. The groom has a part and the bride has a part. I'll never forget. Uh, I have, we have two sons, uh, both married and with grandchildren. But my youngest son, Joshua, married a young lady he met up in uh, Bible College in New York. And uh, her mother had passed away years before from cancer. And her father had really been absent her whole life. So we adopted Marina as really her mom and dad. 
And so they were engaged and they moved here from Bible college and we were responsible for both the groom and the bride side of getting ready for the wedding. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's like double misery. You know, I mean, it's like double trouble. So, so I thought myself, I got two sons. This is going to be slam dunk, man. This is easy, man. Getting doing the wedding deal because the brides, they'll all come pre, you know, everything's taken care of. Their side of the family's going to handle all this stuff and all the, all those kinds of stuff. I don't have to worry about all that. Didn't happen that way. I think God wanted me to taste what it was like to have a daughter <laughs> and to go through preparation for a wedding. And I just can't tell you the amount of preparation that was going on. I was shocked when I looked at everything that the list of stuff that they had to do 30 days out for the wedding. I mean, all I've ever done my whole life for 42 years is said, do you take, the, you know, I mean, I just did. That's all I was responsible for, you know. But man, I mean, everything's going on. I mean, plans and, and invitations and showers and wedding presents and, 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 you know, pedicures and manicures and makeup jobs and hair jobs that you've never seen such the like of all kinds of stuff. I'm always wondering, why do women want to do their hair different on a wedding than they ever have worn it before? <laughs> never, ever have they worn their hair that way. He didn't fall in love with you with your hair that way. But whenever it comes to the wedding, all of a sudden the hair goes... <laughs> All kinds of directions. Have you ever noticed that? Jezreel, I don't get that. You'll have to help me understand that. But anyway, I think my point is the amount of preparation. We were living in a condo over in Harborview. Our whole house was full of stuff that had to do with getting ready for the wedding. And Carrie and I were like, we will be so thankful when this wedding is done, the honeymoon is done, and all this stuff is gone. It's simply a part of getting ready for a marriage, isn't it? That's a part. You ladies say yes, amen. That's just part of the deal. Pastor Bobby, just get used to it. But it's the nature of a bride to make herself ready. I w I've done a lot of weddings. I've lost count. I don't know if I've ever seen a wedding when a bride comes down the aisle, her hair's a mess. Sometimes it looks, never mind. Uh, that comes down the aisle, they have already been primped and cared for. and paid. Never have I seen someone come in with mud all over and dress that's torn. Some of the stuff you see in the movies, don't believe all that stuff. I've never, ever, ever seen a bride come down in a wedding and not be tip-top preparation. Why? It's simply a part of the bride getting ready for marriage. Now, as the church is the bride, I ask you the question, should we not be in some kind of preparation? Should we not also be in some kind of a preparation mode for marrying our groom? But most Christians are checked out. They're just totally checked out with something like that. They're so fully engaged with life and busyness and this and this and this and this and this. But get it, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're supposed to be preparing ourselves. That means growing in Christ and growing in our relationship with him. That means allowing the word of God to cleanse us and sanctify us and make us ready. There's a lot. Listen, we don't have to worry about makeup, but the Bible does say that he is going to prepare himself a bride and she is going to be ready. That's his part. Our part to cooperate with the work of the sanctifying Holy Spirit that we'll be ready for our wedding day. Are you getting ready? I hope that you are focused on that. The third mark of the bride of Christ. The third mark is that a bride keeps herself pure. 
keeps herself pure. I want to read to you from a scripture. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to look at this. I'm going to read the whole thing because this is something you don't hear talked about very much. This is the Apostle Paul who is, has a relationship with the people of Corinth that he's writing to, and he's going to admonish them, and you will hear a jealous, a jealous father speaking uh, to the bride there in Corinth. So listen to what he says. He said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband. I betrothed you. So he's taking a responsibility, kind of a fatherly, spiritual fatherly responsibility for the betrothal. He says, I promised you to one husband, emphasis on one, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus, a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you've already received, or a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it too easily. Just go here with me. What he's saying is, Believers at Corinth, I did a lot to win you to Christ, and I promised you, in your betrothal now to Christ, I promised that you would be standing before him on the wedding day as a pure, devoted virgin. Fully devoted. In beautiful purity. And that was Paul's dream for the church. It's also God's intent for the church. And what Paul is really saying here is in the same way that some people fall into the deception and even the temptations of being unfaithful in their devotion during their engagement period. Let it not be so with you. He said, I'm I'm concerned. This was a concerned jealousy he was feeling. Because what he was feeling is this bride, Corinth, was doing like this. Listening to other voices, checking out other men, right? Now he gets specific. He said, more specifically, I'm worried that you're actually going to succumb to another Jesus. Now, we know there's only one Jesus Christ, but he was saying someone else who comes as a Jesus. I mean, you might even call that an antichrist spirit, if you want. Another Jesus. He said, also, another spirit than the one you received. Which one had they received? Holy Spirit. I'm worried that you've opened yourself up to the influx and influence of other spirits. Demonic influences. Listen, you can't be fully devoted to Christ and purely devoted if you allow influence from darkness. I'm also worried that you're you're being sucked into another gospel. Did y'all know that there's other gospels being preached today? Other than the gospel you have in your Bible? Oh, It's rampant, folks. It's all over. All the more reason for us to take these words personally today as the bride of Christ and say, God wants us to be purely devoted. 
Don't whore around. Don't prostitute yourself. Do not yield yourself to the worldly things that would suck you in and pull you under. Don't lose your purity of the devotion. Be totally committed and consecrated to Christ as your only husband to be. That is his intent. And that is what God wants for you. Christ is asking for our total faithfulness during this engagement period. He said, well, I'm not married yet. Remember, from a biblical Jewish standpoint, it was covenantal. You have a covenant with Christ, and he has a covenant with you. It's the new covenant. How many of y'all have recognized another Jesus, another spirit, or another gospel? You see it around? You haven't? Open up your eyes. It's around. The fourth mark that I'll share with you here. Our last two together. Number four is that a bride, a true bride, is adorned with gifts. Now, I read you the one from Revelation that said that when the end comes, the bride is coming and she is adorned. Back in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Eliezer and Rebecca, if I could, I'm going to take two minutes to tell this story very quickly. Abraham represents Father God. Isaac represents the son, of course, Jesus, the one who was looking for the bride. Eliezer was his servant. And he sent his servant off, Abraham did, to go fetch a bride for Isaac, his son. And sent her off to, sent the, spirit, the, 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 the servant, I'm sorry, off to a foreign land, a dry land. And Eliezer, the servant who represents the Holy Spirit, went to a foreign land to find, to find a bride for Isaac. And when they finally, I won't digress into the process he used, which is intriguing, by the way. But when he found the right bride, he put her on the camels. And he began to open up treasure chests of jewels. Necklaces, rings, all kinds of goodies. And he said, he said, here, I know you've never seen Isaac face to face, but wear this. Here, these were things that told her more about the man. She had just agreed to marry. Sight unseen. Do you see the parallels in the type? Sight unseen. But Eliezer told her enough. All she, she fell in love with Isaac, sight unseen. Fully represented and explained by Eliezer. And he began to put those robes and put those clothes and jewels on her. Put her on the camel and off they began to arrive. One of the things that clearly marked out Isaac's bride. He knew it was his bride. Was when he saw his gifts on her. When he saw her adorned in those. He said, ah. That's my woman. Right there. Every bride in most situations is going to be the recipient of gifts. Gifts coming in from right and left. What I want you to know is that as the bride of Christ today, he also wants to grant you, bless you with gifts. Spiritual gifts. Paul tells the church at Corinth in the 12th chapter, in the first verse, Church, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual 
gifts. Can I just tell you that there's still a lot of ignorant churches about spiritual gifts? I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant. Therefore, I want to teach you about them. And he began to teach them. Listen, God wants to give you. He wants to gift you and adorn you with more gifts than you can even imagine. The gifts from God should adorn the bride. The scripture says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Ephesians 4. And you know what? He's still giving gifts to people today. And we are to be adorned with his gifts. Yes, for practical purposes. Yes, to win people to Jesus. Yes, to edify the church. But also so that Jesus, when he sees us face to face, will be fully adorned as his bride. Give you one last point and we'll close. A true bride, real, real brides, eagerly await their wedding day. Plenty of scriptures about this. I just chose one to put it on the screen there for you. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, While we wait, speaking to you and me, while we wait for the blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? We have a lot of hope in Christ. But the blessed hope is a specific hope. What is it? It is the hope and the knowledge that Jesus is coming back again. I don't act very excited about this, but... While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, listen, the true bride should have this eager anticipation for the wedding day. Any bride that's really engaged to the right man should be eager about, I just can't wait for the wedding day. Had a young lady meet with me earlier this week. She said, well, we just got engaged and we're ready to get married. And I said, when? She said, August. I said, you know, I, you know, that's not up for me to decide when you're going to get married between you and your parents, but I like your eagerness. I like that. I think there should be this eager anticipation of a wedding day. Sometimes I get a little upset. People wait five, six, seven, eight years. I'm thinking, are you really in love? I mean, you know, don't think it's all going to get together. You never get it all together. It's never convenient time. You know what I'm saying? At some point, though, you should be eagerly awaiting. I can't wait for the wedding day. And if that anticipation temperature goes down, you should be concerned. And as the church, we should be eagerly waiting. Our eyes always tuned in to see when it's a cloudy day, James, because he will return for us one day. In the same way he came the first time, he's coming back. If you haven't died before then, you are part of the bride of Christ. My friend, you will be caught up and taken by Jesus into that heavenly place of a wedding day. What a day that will be. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Salvation as in the, the consummation of our saving experience. You know what? I remember back in the day, and of course I'm a student of, of church and history and preachers. There used to be a, a strong movement among those. Musicians can come up, please. Um, there used to be a strong movement among churches and, and ministers, evangelical of different kinds, with a strong preaching emphasis on the return of Christ. Used to be. I'm talking about 
in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, even a little bit into the 1970s. I mean, it was on the, it was on the tongues of many. And I'm not here to get into all kind of eschatological theories. I don't, I don't care. You can believe whatever particular vein you want. And I'm me, I'm a pan millennialist. I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. So anyway, I, so I don't really care what you hold to. But what you do need to hold to is that he is returning. And we are to have and possess this eager hope and anticipation for the soon. I know it's a relative term, isn't it? The soon return of Jesus Christ. Here, you hardly ever hear in most circles preaching, teaching, talk about Jesus coming back. I think some of us have just said, you know, we, you know, they've been talking about that for centuries. You know, he still hasn't come back. So I guess may, maybe we're just, maybe we don't understand that. I'd rather die anticipating his return than for him to come back and I'd be in a lazy posture. Someone say amen. I want you to pray with me. Stand to your feet, please. We talked about the bride of Christ today. There's a lot to glean. Oh, there's a lot to reflect on, isn't there? So I pray that you'll pray this week and say, God, show me how I can be a better bride, that I can represent the bridegroom better as the bride of Christ. We're going to have some prayer teams here at the front as we're going to close with a song. Prayer teams are going to be here available to pray with you. If you're not a part of the bride of Christ, you're not yet betrothed. Today is your day. Today is your day. Come and pray. One of these things, say, pray with me. I want to know Jesus personally. I want to be engaged to him. I want to be a part of the bride.